Hi, my name is Pete Redden and welcome to The Way I Taught It, Next Level Aviation Knowledge in Microbursts. This episode is brought to you by Vapor Global Aviation, creating tomorrow's pilots today. Well, it's Groundhog Day, and it looks like we'll have some more winter weather ahead of us. So dust off those POHs and those AFMs and review your cold weather procedures. Today I present Episode 8, Hypoxia. There you are, flying at 8,000 feet on an IFR flight on a cold winter's day. The sky is blue, the air is smooth. The headache you've been battling for the last few minutes just will not go away, but you brush it off. You look over at your passenger while discussing your lunch plans and you notice that they are a bit too calm for the glorious day in aviation you are sharing. You look closer and notice their lips are a bit discolored. You look at their fingertips, kind of dark as well. You are warm and toasty on the flight deck with the heater on. That's when it hits you. Carbon monoxide poisoning. Is this really happening? In the given scenario, how long did it take you to realize it was a hypoxia scenario? How long did it take you to realize that it was a carbon monoxide scenario? How many of you thought this is hypemic hypoxia? Is your first step to shut off the heat or open a window that allows air, outside air directly into the cabin? Let's change the scenario a bit. Maybe you feel fine and your passenger is the only one experiencing symptoms. What are you going to do then? We will review those questions and the four types of hypoxia in today's podcast. Hypoxia. We all know it is due to the lack of oxygen in the body, but there are four types. It depends on what part of the body is not working or not accepting oxygen that determines what kind of hypoxia you have. So let's review the four types. Hypoxic hypoxia. Think about your lungs. This type of hypoxia occurs when the atmospheric pressure is too low and fails to create a pressure differential across the alveoli in your lungs. The alveoli transfer oxygen and carbon dioxide between your body and the atmosphere. As we ascend or climb altitude, this type of hypoxia becomes more likely to occur the higher we go. Also, the physical fitness of a pilot comes into play. The more fit or exposed to higher pressure altitudes a pilot is, the more likely the body will respond in a positive way to the higher altitude. This isn't a contest to see who can get hypoxic first at 12,500 feet. So don't go out there trying that. We're just learning about the different types of hypoxia and when they will most likely set in. Hypoxic hypoxia also comes into play at night. Again, we all know hypoxia sets in around 5,000 feet at night, but do you know what the first symptom is? Your eyesight becomes less effective. It's harder to focus and it's harder to distinguish colors at night. At night, your eyes are a huge consumer of oxygen as they are working overtime to capture any speck of light to help you see. The cones are not at full capacity and the rods are overworking to give you your eyesight at night. Now you throw in the chemical rhodopsin into the mix that helps your eyes see at night and the chemical reactions are really firing now and consuming a ton of oxygen. How can you solve this issue? Specifically, how do you solve hypoxic hypoxia? You can either descend to a lower altitude where the air is more dense, creating a higher pressure differential, or you can use supplemental oxygen. Let's talk about hypemic hypoxia. Think blood. Okay, we have good oxygen, our lungs are working normally, we have a good pressure differential, and we have no adverse substances in our body that's preventing muscle tissue from accepting oxygen. Notice I said muscle tissue. Now, we ha do have a substance in the blood that is preventing our blood from carrying the oxygen we need to our organs, to our muscle tissue, to our 
body tissue. A whole bunch of stuff makes up our blood. As pilots, we are concerned with the hemoglobin, the cellular surface that carries the oxygen to our muscle tissues. This is what is not working. It is not carrying the oxygen to the muscle tissue. The muscle tissue begins to run out of oxygen over time, and we begin to become lightheaded, numb. We start showing those blue fingers, blue lips, because the blood is no longer oxygenated. So the blood's starting to turn purple instead of red. So we lose that, that blush color in our body. The scary thing about hypemic hypoxia is it's not immediate. It's very insidious. And it happens slowly over time, and that's what's dangerous. So from our scenario earlier, the culprit was carbon monoxide entering our bloodstream and adhering to the hemoglobin, preventing oxygen transfer through the body, specifically from the lungs to the blood and then from the blood to the muscle tissue because you have carbon monoxide hanging onto that hemoglobin and it hangs on because of the atomic structure. It hangs onto that hemoglobin much stronger than an oxygen molecule does and an oxygen molecule can't break through that, um, that connection as easily. In this scenario, the most immediate action to take is to get clean air or oxygen into your body as soon as possible. This is by opening a window or vent that is directly connected to the outside air and not heated. Remember, it has to be a window or a vent that is vented directly to the outside without having to pass over any part of your environmental system that is heated. Older aircraft mostly all have the environmental system running through the, the heater core. Whether the core is active or not depends on switch position. Newer aircraft, well, it depends, and the POH and AFM will tell you, and this is where your system's knowledge of your aircraft comes into play. So make sure you identify what vents provide 100% outside air to your cabin and what vents provided, provide the heat to your cabin. So that way, when you have this scenario, you can take the appropriate actions to make sure you're getting fresh oxygen, displacing the carbon monoxide and making sure your heater is off so that you stop the carbon monoxide from penetrating your flight deck. Now, my logic is based on my Air Force training, so follow along and see if you agree. In the Air Force, we were taught during a physiological episode or emergency to gang load our oxygen regulator. We wore helmets and masks and those were connected to oxygen systems and we had three switches that when you pushed all three switches forward, on that oxygen system, you would get 100% oxygen under pressure, and the third switch was to make sure that your oxygen system was actually on. So we wanted our oxygen system providing 100% oxygen under pressure to our lungs before any other step of any other checklist that we might do. If the pilot becomes incapacitated, no one's flying the airplane. So we have to make sure that the pilot is still flying the airplane and is in a condition to fly the airplane. In the earlier scenario provided, if you reach for the heater switch first and pass out while you're reaching across the cockpit or the flight deck, you are now unconscious in a bubble of carbon monoxide. If you open a window first or don your supplemental oxygen, you are now displacing that carbon monoxide with oxygen. In the event that you do pass out before you get to that heater switch, you should eventually regain consciousness. And if the airplane has enough gas and it's trimmed correctly, you should still be airborne. Bottom line, get the oxygen flowing into your body first and then get the heater uh, turned off as quickly as and safely as possible. Now those two things will probably happen almost simultaneously. I'm a big believer and a proponent of getting the oxygen to the pilot first 
before any other step. But you have to make sure that oxygen is 100% coming from the outside of the aircraft and not passing over your heater. Stagnant hypoxia. Think about restriction. Your blood flow has become restricted and is not flowing correctly anymore. Yes, I have heard everything from my heart is not working correctly to I am pulling more than two Gs in my Cessna 172 steep turn and I'm blocking out. Although that is possible, it's not really the root cause of what general aviation pilots will experience. We will experience stagnant hypoxia on those long flights or sometimes long drives if the weather's not good, where our back, butt, and legs fall asleep. You know, those pins and needles that you feel after sitting stagnant for a long period of time. That's it, stagnant hypoxia, when blood flow is restricted due to an outside force on the body. Most humans can withstand 4Gs prior to feeling the effects of what we call G-lock, or G-forces inducing loss of consciousness, or G-induced loss of consciousness. So G-lock occurs in the Air Force depending on what kind of airplane you fly and whether or not you have a G-suit and what type of G-suit you have. So when I flew in the Air Force, I flew the T-6, which was a single-engine turboprop, and we had a G-suit that went around our abdomen and our legs. And when we reached about four Gs, that G-suit started squeezing the lower extremities of our body to push the blood into the upper extremities of our body, specifically our brain, so that we stayed conscious up until about six Gs, six and a half Gs, and then you really had to uh, physically strain against the G-forces to make it any higher. Now, without the G-suit and being physically fit and used to that in flying environment, you could easily go up to four Gs and just rely on your physical straining to keep you conscious. But there were times where we had young, new aviators in the cockpit who were learning how to become military aviators, and we would take them up and we would do something called a G exercise where we would go to two G's and fly the airplane and let the student feel what two G's feels like. We would go to three G's and let the student figure out what that feels like and how to, how to work on their G strain and then come back and go to four G's. Well, usually when you hit that four G's, um, if the student wasn't proficient at their G strain, maybe they didn't hook up their G suit correctly or maybe it got kinked somewhere because they're not used to how the, uh, the connections are to be run, they would black out. So that would be G-lock or G-induced loss of consciousness. And what would happen is they would go to sleep about 15 seconds later after, after the Gs have subsided. Um, they wake back up. Uh, they kind of do what we call the funky chicken. Uh, so they kind of flop around up there in the, in the front seat for a second or two and they wake up and, and they want to know what happened. And they don't even realize that they were flying. So it, it's a pretty significant thing, but I don't think general aviation pilots are going to experience that in, in the maneuvers that we do. But we are going to experience stagnant hypoxia because we've restricted the blood flow in the back of our thighs, our lower back, and we're going to get those pins and needle feelings. We're going to get that lower back pain uh, because the blood is just not flowing the way it's supposed to be. So histotoxic hypoxia. Think muscle tissue, right? Think hangover. So we finally get the oxygen to where it is going to be used, but the tissue will not accept it. The body tissue will not accept it. The body has ingested something, it traveled through the bloodstream, entered the muscle tissue, and now that something is blocking oxygen from entering the tissue on a cellular level. There's nothing wrong with your lungs, there's nothing wrong with the pressure differential in the air, there's nothing wrong with the oxygen or your circulatory system. 
your oxygen consuming tissues are just junked up kind of like an oil filter in an old car with something other than oxygen and it's just not allowing that oxygen to pass. So again, in this situation, you have to descend, you have to increase that pressure differential, you have to use supplemental oxygen. And bottom line, if you are out drinking the night before, uh, too much caffeine, um, too much coffee, you know, these things can inhibit proper oxygen transfer and lower the altitude uh, from which you are gonna experience hypoxia. When in doubt about whether you have hypoxia or some other physiological incident going on, always treat for hypoxia, because hypoxia can kill you. Hypoxia can render the pilot incapacitated for a long period of time. So if you're confused on whether you have hyperventilation or hypoxia, treat for hypoxia, okay? Hyperventilation can be confused with hypoxia at times. So when in doubt, treat for hypoxia because hyperventilation is just the body's way, it's specifically the brain's way of accomplishing a control-alt-delete on the body to reset it due to an overage of oxygen in the body. So basically the body becomes a bit violent, then the body passes out, the brain shuts off for a second, causing an immediate calming effect to reset the body, to reset the breathing, and then you regain consciousness. You, know, you can think about a child crying. If you let them cry long enough, eventually they do hyperventilate, they do kind of reset, and then they usually end up calming down and falling asleep for a really long time. And, you know, mom and dad can get the dishes done and cut the lawn and all that good stuff. So, you know, it, it goes along the, the lines of a, a child crying so much that they hyperventilate, they get over it, they calm down, and then they go to sleep for a little bit. So it's kind of along those lines. So when in doubt, always treat for hypoxia. Again, I'm Pete Redden, and that's another episode of The Way I Taught It. Thank you for finding this podcast worthy of inclusion in your study of aviation. Until next time, fly safe, fly smart. That's The Way I Taught It. Episode references, Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge, Airman's Information Manual, and Personal Experience.